Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Hey, you guys, and welcome back to Bar Fights. Today is exciting because every now and then I get to have a guest on my show who's actually my real life friend. And so so you're going to get to hear today girlfriends who have been through some similar stuff, been through some different stuff come together in the state of Pennsylvania to work on some of the the really important issues for victims, for better law. Um, We've run in the same circle for a long time, and it's just a pleasure to get to have this time today to chat and to bring that conversation to you guys. So my guest today is named Jennifer Storm, and she is a badass. She is so powerful. Her story is so compelling, and you're going to hear about that today. It's a story not only of survival from victim but also a story of addiction and recovery from addiction. Um, Jennifer has over 25 years in active recovery, and she has spent her life and her career advocating for victims of crime and done all sorts of high profile stuff. She's been all over the media. The list is long. Um, Cosby, Sandusky, Catholic clergy victims. She's been on all the shows and all the networks. Um, When I met her, she was serving as the victim advocate in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and, um, and did that for over seven years, which, um, which means she's truly seen it all. (laughs) Um, And she's also one of her most important um, roles besides mother, of course, is um, author. And she's written over six books, you guys, they're critically acclaimed on addiction, recovery, victimization. And so we're going to hear all about that today. And one thing I love about her is her optimism and her ability to show us a path forward of hope, of healing, and of a term which she mentioned to me today that I want to hear more about called post-traumatic growth. Um, So we're going to dive in. We're going to hear all about it. Jennifer Storm, my dear darling friend, welcome to Bar Fights. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Oh my gosh, we would be having this conversation whether it was being recorded or not. So you guys are literally like getting to listen in on two girlfriends, two people who've been through a lot, talk about how the hell we get through it and how the hell we, you know, keep walking this journey of healing. And I call it a journey because as I was saying before we started recording, it's not, there's no end in sight. It's a journey. We get on that mat every day and we practice. And, and I, 
I'm in that place right now of, of really practicing and, and taking those couple steps back right now, not necessarily forward. So this conversation comes at such a good time. Um, so Jen, tell our audience about your story. Tell us how you arrived here today. Fill us in. Yeah. Uh, so I was kind of lived like, you know, a, a normal life, if you will. I put that in air quotes um, in Pennsylvania, grew up in Pennsylvania, lived here my whole life. Um, so I've seen a lot, heard a lot. Um, and I was raped by a stranger when I was 12. Um, and so I was supposed to be going roller skating with a dear friend of mine who, you know, I had known and trusted and she, she was much older than I was. She was 16. And so this was in 1987, right? So we didn't have awareness about anything. <laughs> we, you know, we were, as kids, we were just left to our own devices. Like our parents rarely saw us, nor did they know where we were. It was yeah, like, come home when it gets dark out, honey. Exactly. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like it just, there just wasn't the same life as there yeah. is today in, in general. And so my parents were just like, yeah, your friend, your 16 year old friend wants to pick you up. Absolutely. We don't need to meet or get in the car. And so I got in the car with her and sure enough, there were these two older men who I'd never seen or ever met before. And then there was this massive cooler, which was filled with beer. And I had never drank before. I was like a straight A student, perfect attendance up to this point. And then I was handed this like massive bush pounder. Um, and I started drinking and I drank I tried to emulate what they were doing. And so instead of going to the roller rink, they pulled off and we stopped at like a quarry. Cause if you know, Pennsylvania, we have quarries everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where a lot of bad things happen and parties. And, you know, before I knew it, I was unaware of my surroundings. I didn't know what was going on and I blacked out. And when I came to this 20 something year old man was on top of me, raping me. Mm. I, I had no idea where I was. I was, all I knew was I was in the middle of a field. I was naked. It was dark. I was confused. I managed to kind of push him off of me and, and get to where I thought my friend was. Um, and then I continuously just like blacked out throughout the night. Mm. Uh, so they wouldn't let me go home. So they kind of held me for a little bit, a period of time. So I think at that point they realized like, I, you know, this, this wasn't a good situation. You know, here I am 12 years old. I think at this point it was like two o'clock in the morning. I eventually convinced them to take me home. And when they did, they dropped me off, you know, far away. The police were already at my house. Cause I was, my parents called it in that I was missing. Um, and then I went and had a rape exam done. Mm. So it was the eve of Easter. So literally the morning of Easter, when I should have been in church, where I would have normally had been in church singing in the choir, I was having a rape exam done. So, you know, in a matter of 24 hours, I had these two horrific experiences and I had these two strange men penetrating me and violating me in ways that I never even knew existed because I had also never had a sex talk. I had no idea what sex was, what it wasn't. And then here I was having all of these horrific traumatizing experiences. Oh, that makes me sick. I think of my little girl, like she doesn't know anything about any of that stuff yet. I mean, she's only seven, but imagine that happening to your little body and you have no clue or even context for yeah. what that is. And then trying to make sense of that or navigate yourself to the right place, the right resources. So what did you, what did you do? What did the rest of middle school and high school look like for you? I was a mess. And I think what you pointed out was so important. Like today we have victim advocates. We have rape crisis advocates. We have people in the hospitals. Yeah. We at least have a framework for understanding and a, and a roadmap. Like here's why this is happening. Here's what happens next. And while it doesn't necessarily take the sting out, it does help 
you understand what's happening, right? Like I'll, I'll never forget reading Chanel Miller's uh, memoir when she talked about like, while it was awful to have to have a victim advocate, it also like saved her in a way, like it helped yeah. her understand. I didn't have any of that, like, right. So I'm watching like my favorite pair of jeans and my swatch rugby shirt get folded up and put in a bag that was labeled evidence. And I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know my body was evidence. And I didn't know how to cope with this just catechism of emotions that I started having. I couldn't sleep. I had insomnia, which I, later on I would realize was PTSD, post-traumatic yes. stress disorder. I didn't know that. My parents didn't know that. My parents came from abusive homes. So I think not only A, did they not know how to cope with their own stuff, here I was as like this live trigger of their own stuff, right? So yes. they avoided me. They didn't want to talk about it. So my family just pretended like nothing happened, oh which my God. was not great. Right. So I turned to drugs and alcohol first alcohol, which kind of, you would think is counterintuitive, right? Cause like I had my experience with alcohol and then this really horrible thing happened. I didn't make a causal relationship at that time. I just knew that drinking helped me forget and it numbed all this stuff that was coming up. And so I started drinking and then quickly drinking led to smoking and all, all the things, but very quickly as we were moving through the criminal justice system, I did testify at the prelim and shortly thereafter I attempted to kill myself because um, oh. I just couldn't, I couldn't manage what was happening. Yeah. So I spent my whole summer leading up to seventh grade in a psychiatric ward in Lehigh Valley hospital that was not trauma informed. It was co-ed. It wasn't age separated. Right. So here I was, I had just turned 13. I'm like on this floor with 20, 30, 40 year old men and women. And we're all like in on this floor together. It was so destructive. Like trauma upon trauma upon <laughs> trauma. Yeah. Like my roommate was a, um, a hardcore self harmer. So that's where I learned that, um, self harm that would actually help me right. Like in that mindset, I, I learned how to lie. I, um, I learned that older, other older men were still going to come after me and there was nothing I could do. Right. Oh, and there was, there was men on my floor that were, you know, that were doing things they shouldn't have been doing. Uh, it was awful. It was totally awful. And I spent my whole summer there. So I walked back into my life an absolute broken mess. And, um, I couldn't sit in my own skin long enough to attend a class or to do anything. So I skipped school all the time. I was drunk or high constantly. And I was a blackout drunk. I mean, there's a reason my first memoir was titled blackout girl. I drank in excess so that I wouldn't have to feel. And then as a result of that, I would blackout. And then I got raped again at 15 by a really good friend. And then I got raped again at 17 by another friend. And so I quickly learned like this association with alcohol, while it's helping me not feel it's hurting me. Yeah. And so someone introduced me to cocaine and that oh, allowed me nice. to not black out. It allowed me to stay awake. So I could use alcohol in the way that I needed, which was to run, 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 escape, avoid. And I could still kind of like protect my body and not be in vulnerable harm's way. Yeah. And that became a really, really destructive combination for me. So I lived in a really deep addiction for about 10 years. I mean, I, I turned to crack cocaine at 17. Oh. So from 17 to 22, I, I was, I was very much, um, a crackhead just doing what I needed to do to, to get drugs. I was living on the streets of Allentown all over the place. Uh, it was, it was a mess. My life had become an absolute mess. Yeah. And it's so, I think important for people to know, looking at you now, a professional, an author, a mother, like you, you, I look at you and I'm like, she's got her shit together, right? Like she's a rock star. I admire her. I think she's the best. I've seen you speak publicly. Like you're, I look at you as like a 
put together grown up. I think it's important for people to note that what you see is not always what happened behind closed doors. You oh. know, you don't look like a crackhead. You don't look like a right. Like, yes, yes. it's important for people to know that what you see on social media and what you see when you look at somebody is not necessarily what's going on behind closed doors. With that said, looking at you now, clearly you found a path out of it. So tell us about that. When did the tide start to turn for the better? I think when I was 22, I had endured at that point so much loss and so much suffering and so much trauma that the drugs and alcohol weren't working anymore. Right. I just had kind of gotten to a a capacity that I was so full. And then my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and I had a very volatile relationship with her and she ended up dying in my arms when I was 22. And that was kind of like, it it filled, it overflowed the bucket, right? I was, I, there wasn't enough drugs there. There weren't enough. There just weren't enough. And so I I attempted to take my life again in in a rather brutal way. And I was really fortunate to that. My brothers came and found me. Um, Had they not found me, I would have died. And they got me to a hospital and then I went to rehab. I I quickly kind of realized that the things that I thought were saving me were actually killing me, which was the drugs and alcohol. And so it was that, you know, when I woke up, I think I was so surprised to be alive, if I'm being very honest. And when I realized I was alive, I was like, okay, then there's got to be something different. There's got to be another way to cope with this. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew enough that the drugs and the alcohol were, were the problem. They were no longer the solution. And so I just kind of leaned into that and I started listening to people. I went to a rehab again. It wasn't a trauma-informed rehab. They didn't address my sexual violence background in any way at all. Uh, Somehow though, through that process, I intuitively started to understand that I needed to unpack my stuff. And there was, there was a girl that came into rehab. She was young and she shared like her story. And I remember like sitting in the audience in awe of her thinking she's like, look at her, she's been where I've been. And she's like this amazingly you know successful person. And she said this thing that has kept with, you know, stayed with me until this day. And that was that her secrets kept her sick. Mm. And it hit me in this really massive way where I was like, oh, all this stuff that I'm stuffing, that I'm running from, that I can't talk about, that I won't talk about. These are the things that are actually keeping me sick. And I used to explain my um, trauma as like a darkness inside of me mm-hmm. that I, you know, I would try to get it out. And so the, the cutting and a lot of the self-harm was very much that was it was a symbol symbolic of me trying to get that out. Yes. And it, I made that connection that, oh, this darkness in me is actually the secrets I'm keeping. Yes. And in order to let light in, I've got to start unpacking these secrets. So I didn't feel safe to do that with people in the rehab because again, they weren't trauma-informed. So I started doing it through writing. And I just started writing and journaling and writing and getting it out. And then I was really fortunate when I got out of rehab, I went to a halfway house quickly. And then I moved to State College, Pennsylvania, randomly just to get away from being in the Lehigh Valley. I know I joke that I moved to like the number one drinking town to get sober. But I did find an amazing community of support there. And most importantly, I found a trauma therapist Mm -hmm. who really gave me that safe space to unpack this stuff with a clinician. Like I wasn't just unpacking it in my journal. Now I was unpacking it with somebody clinically trained to like walk me through it. Um, And really the only modality though that we use was talk therapy. So I know now there's all these other really incredible, sophisticated modalities that I wish I would have had access to then that sometimes I wonder, should I do that? Should I check that out? Yeah. About that. Um, but I did, I just started to unpack it all. And then 
I decided to go to college. And so in 1999, so I got clean and sober in 97. In 1999, I went to my first Take Back the Night event. Wow. And I, something moved my feet into the middle of the circle when they called and asked, you know, they, they do this thing where they just say, does anybody want to share their story? And I just like, before I knew it, I was standing in the middle of this circle of women holding light around me. And I felt so protected and so safe that I was able to share my story. And when I did that happened, <laughs> like, like I could exhale. Yes. Freedom um, overcame me. And it's where I found my voice. And I haven't, as you know, I haven't stopped talking. So you haven't stopped talking (laughs) since girl. And now we got these six books. So you never set out to say, I'm going to be an author. You set out to say, I'm going to take some stuff out of my psyche and dump it on paper. Absolutely. Yes. All of my writing was, was purely for me until like, I'm also an avid reader. And so I kept looking for books and like all the books on trauma, first of all, were scary as hell. The ones that did exist, like they were like encyclopedias. Like I'll never forget my therapist being like, go get the book, the courage to heal. And I don't mean to knock on this book. It has some really great resources. However, it's like a thousand pages long. I remember taking it off the shelf at Barnes and Noble and going, nope. And put it right back on the shelf. I was like, that is so intimidating. So and I couldn't find my story, right? Like I was, I had come out finally as, as being gay. And that was also a part of my traumatic history and a part of the reasons I used. And so I couldn't find my story. And then eventually I was like, well, I kind of wrote it. Like I've got like 400 pages of ramblings, you know? So I, I sought out to see like, the, would somebody want to publish this? And yeah. the whole Hazel and Publishing did. And the rest is history. The rest is history. I mean, that was 2008, <laughs> So there weren't a lot of people talking about sexual violence back then. If you look, go back to 2008, I think it's part of the reason that, you know, and I I don't mean to say this to diminish myself, but like, I was a nobody. I was just like this girl living in central Pennsylvania who happened to write a book. And yet I ended up like being on E! News and Cosmopolitan and and like Rolling Stone magazine. And it was because they couldn't find people that were willing to talk about their trauma. in sexual violence. it was like me and Mackenzie Phillips for a while. That just kind of like we were the people being interviewed. Um, and I, you know, it was because this was such a taboo subject. Yeah. Yeah. Such a taboo topic. Um, so it's been amazing to see how far we've come as a field and as a as a sisterhood and as a survivorhood, that there are now so many spaces where people can share their stories. So we've literally got the OG on the phone right now. We've got the OG and I can't imagine how terrifying or brave or all the things it would be to to be one of the first, like I, I just went with the crowd, right? Like I only started speaking up publicly when everybody else under the sun did, right? But you were doing it before anybody was doing it. Um, which had to have its own set of complex emotions and yes. fears. And yeah, I mean, I'm really grateful that social media wasn't really much of a thing in 20, 2008. Yeah. I think we had um, Friendster and MySpace, right? Because yeah. I remember using MySpace to like really try to connect with survivors. But thank God, like, and I remember I would not look at the comments like on E! News's website whenever I'd be quoted or like I wouldn't look at the comments because they were horrific. Yes. They were just so victim blaming and shaming. Um, but yeah, I mean, thankfully we didn't have Twitter and, and all of these like really damaging social media platforms. I mean, they can be used for good and amazing and they've gotten the word out and the Me Too campaign was powerful and amazing. 
And they're also like some of the most visceral spaces for us, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't even begin to, I mean, I've gotten death threats, uh-huh. um, <laughs> death threats, been told all sorts of crazy stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and thankfully that stuff, I have not absorbed it. Um, but I know a lot of survivors who have, you know, yeah. and it, it can be so incredibly damaging for sure. Absolutely. For sure. So tell us about the books. Tell us about, tell us about what you do now. Tell us about the resources that you provide all of us, including myself. (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, I got into victim services almost by happenstance. I I was going to college to be a drug and alcohol counselor because like, I felt like that was this gift I had been given and I wanted to give it back. I didn't know victims had rights. I had no idea that there was this whole field dedicated until I became a victim of a hate crime at Penn State. And then I did my research and I got a letter from a victim advocate. I was like, who is this? What is this? And I, as soon as I learned about it, I was like, oh, this is, this is where I need to be. And so I moved to Harrisburg after I graduated and I just got myself embedded in victim services. So I did that work for 20 years and I worked, you know, in the legislature, I worked um, in a nonprofit. And then I, as you indicated, I was appointed by the governor as a victim advocate in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And so I've worked on all ends of the justice system, um, walking victims through the process And where I really shined, I guess, or where I really felt comfortable was representing victims in the media. And I think it was because I found my voice so early on that I was really comfortable in it. I was comfortable having these really uncomfortable conversations with media. And I knew the majority of the survivors I was working with weren't ready. They Mm -hmm. didn't want want to be associated. And yet they were like, they would see the stories and they'd say, well, where am I in that? And why is my, like, why are, where's my story? And so I would often be the voice for so many survivors who, and sometimes it was because they had NDAs, right. Or, or they couldn't speak because, because of ongoing litigation. And so I often would be their voice. Um, And, and it was a really, it felt like a real gift that I was able to give back. Um, and then, you know, I subsequently lost my job very publicly for that voice. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've seen all ends of this and I've seen how powerful um, special interest groups and lobbyists and legislators can be and how demonic they can be. And, um, you know, in Pennsylvania, as you know, we're both staunch advocates for statute of limitations reform. We still don't have it. Our legislature has used every disgusting political maneuver to try to negate responsibility and to keep this bill from coming to fruition. You know, it's been 17 years that we've been working on this bill, 17 years. It's it's disgusting. It's unconscionable. And it's Pennsylvania at its best. Standing ovation. <laughs> I mean, now now you guys can can understand why this girl is my spirit animal because um you couldn't have put it better and we're both out there hollering the same stuff and um it seems at least in the state of Pennsylvania it falls on deaf ears but we will get there and we will celebrate yes. one day hopefully not not too long That's from now yes. yeah yep yeah. totally totally yeah. so so in terms of what our listeners can glean from you in terms of what we talked about, in terms of that hope, in terms of that healing, in terms of that post-traumatic growth, where should they start? What advice do you have? I I think you put it best, Sarah, in the beginning when you said this is a journey, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been clean and sober for 25 years. and, and, And with that means I have been working on recovery from all the things for 25 years. And the biggest biggest boulder has been my sexual violence trauma. Mm -hmm. And it has taken me 25 years and I am still growing in this place 
to figure out how to, how do I heal? And I, you know, there is no roadmap for this. I think we, we do now have some roadmaps. We have a lot of different modalities. We have different therapies that are really successful. And yet every person's situation is unique. What I've really tilted my time and my energy towards is helping survivors heal. And specifically in that space where substances are being used to cope because, you know, 90% of women use substances to cope with their sexual trauma and also do a lot of men and non-binary and transgender folks like substances is where we go and it, they're destructive. They don't, they, they serve a purpose until they don't. So I've really worked hard on building spaces where folks can recover and heal in, in a really safe place. And so I, I wrote a curriculum based off my last book, Awakening Blackout Girl. That's a 10 week program that like walks people through trauma recovery and, and substance use um, decrease, right? Cause I don't believe in abstinence. Like I think that people need to find their own path and whatever works for them works for them. And there is this beautiful, wonderful place beyond trauma. There really is. It's, and it's that post-traumatic growth that we don't hear about enough, but it's real. Um, and there are, you know, there are certain hurdles that you've got to kind of get through, right? It's the acknowledgement of the trauma. It's then processing the trauma. It's feeling the feelings in a safe place, moving through all that, finding, you know, your forgiveness for yourself. If you choose forgiveness for others, that's not necessarily a requirement, right? And then figuring out like, what are those coping mechanisms that help me feel like a better person rather than what are those things that temporarily relieve my pain and then make me feel worse the next day? Uh, and I will say this, and this is uh, something that I really want us to start talking more and more about. My biggest hurdle was sex, was Ooh. actually having a solid, intimate relationship with myself first and then with another person. We need a whole other show for that. And we are going to do it because that, I mean, that's a topic we need to dive into a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. What I can say is after 25 years of work, there is a very beautiful place that you can be sexually with intimacy, with trust that does exist. It's there. I never thought I was going to get it. I mean, my therapist can tell you, cause I still go to therapy as I, as everyone should, cause I believe yes. that safe lives. Um, like probably three years ago, three, yeah, three years ago, I was like, I'm never going to get past this one issue. So I'm always going to be guarded. Touch is always going to be hard. I'm always going to be controlling. And here I am three years later and I don't have the, those things anymore in my life. Unbelievable. So there, it, there is hope. I want survivors to know that there is such a beautiful place beyond your trauma. It doesn't mean your trauma is gone. It just fits in a different way in your life. Um, and there's, there is this beautiful, beautiful place that, that we can live in that still has pain, right? I mean, we're never absolved from the trauma. We're never free from all of the pain. It's a part of us. Um, but we can learn to like, I've learned to walk through it, to manage it in ways that are not destructive for me any, anymore. Now that doesn't mean I don't have days where I don't get out of bed. Yeah. I'm crying for, you know, what would seemingly be no reason, but I know the reason, right? You know, there are still those days that it comes and it comes with a fury and I've got to process it. I, it's what I've come to learn about that, that fury is that it begs release. And if you give it the attention and the release that it requires, there's a place on the other side of that, that is, that feels freer, right? So you got to like walk through that storm to get to that rainbow, which is like such a ridiculous cliche. I can't believe I just said that, but it's true. <laughs> It totally is. It totally is. And I'm like, 
I'm getting it. I'm really, really getting it because the easier option is to just pour a glass of wine, you know, or just go on, you know, Instagram and scroll or storm going on outside and creating reality. A hundred percent. No, I love that. So if I'm listening to this and I say, I'm in love with this girl, Jen storm, and I want to, I want to work her process because I want what she has figured out. Where do we go? What do we do? I'm all over social media. So on Instagram is probably where I live the most. So it's blackout girl author. Um, Jenniferstorm.com is just my website. You can learn all about my books, my curriculum, how to request me as a speaker. Um, but just social media, I respond to every single message I get, even the hateful ones, uh, <laughs> which are not, are, are fewer and far between Unless, of course, unless I'm talking about Sandusky and Penn state, God forbid. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting attacked on Twitter as we speak because of that mess right now, but, um, yeah, I just social media and I will, you know, I will reach back out and I am starting to launch the curriculum. I did it in the state of Maine. I've done it in Pittsburgh. I'm about to roll it out in Maryland. Um, so, and I am, I am thinking about just kind of doing, running my own class. So I'm going to start promoting that. So if folks are interested in the curriculum, I've done it as a one-on-one with folks too. So I've, you know, I will do personal coaching and one-on-one sessions with people. Um, it's been successful in both ways. That's amazing. And I'm over here thinking, yeah, you need to, you need to get these sessions on your website so we can just click, click and sign up if it hasn't been, you know, rolled out in our state yet, for sure. Um, the books, you guys, amazing. We can find them on Amazon. Is that the best spot? They're all over that. Amazon. Yeah. Everywhere. Libraries. If you, if, if money isn't as a challenge, every library has at least blackout girl, they might not have the others, but they definitely have blackout girl. And they'll amazing. order them if you ask. Amazing. This is just the beginning of our conversation on this show, Jennifer Storm. You need to come back. We're going to talk about sex, you guys. We're going to talk about, (laughs) we're going to go there. We're going to go there because I've seen it go both ways. You know, people have a really hard time with intimacy and touch and others becoming incredibly hypersexual using their bodies to try to uh, get love. Um, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. So we're going to have that conversation. You guys stay tuned sooner than later. Jennifer Storm, you're a gift. You are a gift. You are an amazing, incredible person. I'm so touched to know you. I'm so touched to call you my friend. Um, and this is just the beginning. You guys check her out on Instagram, buy the books, and I'm going to talk her into offering the curriculum. (laughs) And I will be registrant number one. Here's the thing I love so much about you is you are a warrior, like iron sharpens iron. And when I met you, I was like, this is my kind of person. You are doing so much good in the world and, and calling out injustices and speaking truth to power. Like you do it better than anyone I know. And thank you for all that you do. I know you're in a war right now and I know you're going to come out on the other side of it. You have just been such a beautiful kind of candle in the wind for other survivors. So thank you for what you do too. Oh my gosh. I love you. And we're keeping it real. We talk about the good stuff and we talk about the shit stuff. So <laughs> So you guys, I'm going to bring Jennifer Storm back on the show. I know this is going to be one of the most popular, powerful episodes that we've had. Um, Maybe even as soon as next month, stay tuned. We'll talk about sex. Um, And Jennifer, thank you so much. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Love you too.
Thank you for listening to Bar Fights with attorney Sarah Klein, taking on issues that matter. Please check out our website at barfightspodcast.com, Instagram at barfightspodcast, or Twitter at barfights underscore pod for the latest show updates and archives.